guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well this week. How are you? I'm doing amazing. I have a fully inflated lung. I am off steroids, so I'm no longer wanting to punch every wall in my house like every 90s baseball player. And I feel really good. February is going to be my month. I'm so excited. Yeah, you sound better. You sound like you're back to yourself. And yeah, you sound like you. You sound happy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I did. I would never want to listen to the episode from two weeks ago because I thought I was dying. And I just can't imagine that I was able to convey any other (laughs) enthusiasm there. So I'm back and more terrible than ever. Yeah, awesome. (laughs) So, So I'm really excited about this week's episode. This case actually just finally came to a complete conclusion just really, really recently, like last week. So I'm really excited to do it. Mandy's had Google Google alerts set for this thing. We keep getting them until this case was over. She was ready for you guys. I was so ready for this one. Well, uh, Melissa has organized a spreadsheet for us to look at for picking cases. And this one was on there and it caught my attention a while back and I started doing the research on it. And then I realized it was about to go to trial at that time. So I set it aside and wanted to come back to it and I just could not wait any longer. As soon as I found out that the trial was going on, I was like, nope, this is the one we're doing um, next. And that's what we did. So I'm really excited and I just want to get right into it. So there's a good chance that everybody listening has probably heard the old saying about women's intuition and how it's really something that we shouldn't ignore. The internet is full of stories about women who have escaped or avoided danger just by following their gut instincts and listening to what some people call the little voice in the back of their heads. But what happens when our intuition is telling us something that is really, really hard to believe or that we don't want to believe, such as that our spouse of 18 years is responsible for something truly horrific? That is exactly what happened to a woman in this week's story named Cindy Carlson after building a life with a man that she thought she knew and could trust. That man was Carl Carlson, and this week's episode is about the many unfortunate accidents that happened in his life and what led to his second wife, Cindy, turning him into the police. The story this week really takes place in two different locations, but all of these events kind of came together in a place called Romulus, New York, which is in Seneca County. So before we get into the details of the case, we're going to tell you a little about Romulus in this week's segment of We Googled This City. Romulus is located in Seneca County, New York, as Mandy was saying, and has a population of 4,316 residents as of the 2010 census. Side note, Romulus sounds like Fremulon, and if you listen to or watch a lot of Michael Schur TV shows like The Good Place... Um, Wait, how does it sound like that? I don't think those two R- words sound Romulus and Fremulon, like, like, just say... <laughs> I, I said that with so much confidence. I'm, like, <laughs> shook that you did not agree with me. You're right, but... Romulus, Fremulon, they both have the reason. <laughs> I'm on my I don't last know. Day of I'll let you have that one, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. So, oh, this is going to go downhill really fast then. But anyway, I thought it, I don't know, Fremulon is such a fun word and it kind of sounds like Romulus in my head, in my opinion, and it's a Michael Schur TV show thing. 
voiced by Nick Offerman. You don't hate Parks and Rec, so I brought it all full circle for you. And this is a fact that you can never use again because it doesn't even make sense, apparently. I really should run these by you before I start on them. So the town of Romulus was named after the mythological founder of Rome named Romulus, apparently by a town clerk there that thought it was worth doing instead of naming it after themselves, which is 100% the thing I would do. (laughs) The fact there's no Melissa cities says a lot about how really successful us Melissas are. While there isn't a ton of info on Romulus, the county itself, Seneca, had a company named Seneca Knitting Mills, and they made all the socks for many years that were actually used for the National Hockey League, National Basketball League, and were supposedly the first socks that went to the moon. Legend has it, and by legend I mean I made this up, that Neil Armstrong was actually sponsored by Seneca Knitting Mills for his trip to the moon. And there... (laughs) Sometimes I'm digging the bottom of the barrel here. And the real quote after being on the moon was, that's one small step for man in Seneca knitting mill socks and one giant leap for mankind. (laughs) But that's only if you believe, of course, Mandy, that they ever landed on the moon. (laughs) And that little note's for you. Lastly, actor Christopher McDonald grew up in Romulus. And for all the McDonald heads out there, I'm sure there are a few of you. If you've ever thought about visiting his childhood home, of course you have. It's actually haunted, so it's a terrible idea. He's actually on this episode of something called Haunting of the TV Show. I could not watch it. Well, I could have watched it, but I won't watch it because I'm terrified of haunted things. But if you ever wanted to watch it, it's out there. And if you're like, Melissa, who is Christopher McDonald and why do you keep telling me things I don't care about? Well, Christopher McDonald actually starred opposite Adam Sandler in the movie Happy Gilmore. Oh. Yeah, and he also played every rich jerk or uncle in every comedic movie in the 90s. That's why earlier today I was like, Mandy, have you seen Happy Gilmore? I did not get a reply, but I decided to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Mandy, it's time to get into this week's episode of the show. Unless you're too good for your show, Mandy. Are you too good for your show? Answer me! (laughs) (laughs) Melissa, I don't care what anyone says. I love Google This City. Wait, who is the people? saying they hate it that implies everyone hates it i shouldn't i've said too much already okay i love it so much (laughs) they do i know they're there (laughs) okay so this week's episode this is really one of those stories that i had a little bit of a hard time deciding where to begin because there are so many elements to this story and i didn't know if it made sense to tell it in chronological order or if i should start kind of in the middle so just because for no real reason, I decided we're going to start in the middle this week. So we're changing the format just a little bit with this episode, but we will bring it all around by the end, right? You know what? After you're (laughs) serving me in the last segment, I don't know that I want to acknowledge what you just said. (laughs) I will though, because I'm a team player. All right. So we're just going to go for it then. Keep going. In the early 2000s, life was really pretty good for the Carlson family. Carl and Cindy had been happily married for 10 years, and they were raising four children together. When Carl first met Cindy back in the early 90s, he had just recently moved back to Seneca County following a tragic house fire in which his first wife, Christina, passed away. The couple had three children together, Aaron, Levi, and Katie, who all escaped the fire with Carl, but their mother was sadly trapped inside. Following the death of his first wife, Carl packed up their three children and left their home in Murphy's, California, and moved back to upstate New York, where Carl's family lived. 
Carl had previously held a job at a stone quarry before he and Christina moved to California, and so he was able to go back to his job there when he returned to the area several years later with his children. He really wasn't a big fan of this life of working in a quarry, and he soon moved on to working for a glass manufacturing plant. The Carlson family was, the name was actually pretty well known around town. Carl's father was the county highway superintendent, and he and his wife had seven children, and one of them was Carl, so, and they had always lived in this area, so they kind of were, everybody kind of knew who the Carlsons were. So this community really gathered around Carl in the wake of the tragedy to help him with his children as they sort of tried to rebuild their lives. In 1992, a year after losing his wife, Carl met Cindy Best at a line dancing party. She immediately took to Carl and felt sympathy for him after learning that he was a single father whose wife had recently passed away. She knew that Carl's three children needed a mother figure, and she was happy to step in and join their family. Cindy and Carl were married in the summer of 1993. Almost immediately after, the couple bought a farm in Romulus. They would eventually go on to breed and show Belgian draft horses. Belgian draft horses are a working-class horse. They are one of the strongest of the heavy breeds. They're also popular as show horses and occasionally for riding. The couple put a lot of time, effort, and money into these horses. And this is a little Easter egg because this is going to come back later. Before long, the couple decided to have a child of their own together. Through in vitro fertilization, Cindy became pregnant with a baby boy who they named Alex. At this time, Carl's other three children were preteen or young teenagers, and throughout the years, Carl's older children were able to spend time with their maternal family from California. Their mother's death had been obviously heartbreaking to her family, and they felt like it was a double whammy when Carl just up and moved the kids away from them to be closer to his own family, clear on the other side of the country. Christina's family loved getting to see her kids when they could, and they were delighted in seeing some of Christina's own personality traits and mannerisms that had been passed down to her children. Carl and Christina's son, Levi, in particular, was a lot like his mom with his eccentric personality. But as the only son, Levi often butted heads with Carl while he was growing up. Things got so bad between them that Levi moved out when he was just 17 years old. Family members were really sad to see this rift between Carl and Levi growing, knowing that Levi really wanted nothing more than to have a close relationship with his father, and that it was really Carl who was beginning to push his son away. Levi spent some time bouncing around, you know, different friends' houses and sleeping on different couches, and eventually he got his own place with his girlfriend, who was named Cassie. Levi and Cassie first met when they were 16, and by the time they were 18, they were already married. Within a short period of time, this young couple produced two daughters named Elettra and Ivy. Despite Levi and Carl's strained relationship, Carl still maintained a relationship with his granddaughters, and he visited with the young family often. Unfortunately, after about five years of marriage, Levi and Cassie went through kind of a nasty divorce, and at this time, Levi was still just in his early 20s, and he really tried to step it up and be the best father he could be to his little girls. He got his GED, and he started working really hard to provide for them. During this time, Levi and Carl's relationship seemed to really improve a little, and Levi would go visit his dad really often at the farm and help him work on projects, or he would go work on things of his own on his dad's property. And that's what he was really doing on November 20th, 2008. Levi wanted to come over to work on a truck, which was a Chevy Silverado, in his dad's detached garage on the farm. 
Carl and Cindy actually had plans that day to attend a funeral, and they were gone for about four hours while Levi was in the garage working on this truck. When they returned home, Cindy went inside the house while Carl walked out to the garage to let Levi know that they had, you know, returned home from this funeral. And that's when Carl says that he came upon this unfathomable tragedy. His 23-year-old son was found dead in the garage after being crushed by the truck that he had been working on. The truck had evidently slipped off the jack that was holding it up and fallen onto Levi. Carl rushed back to the house and frantically told Cindy to dial 911. And over the next several minutes and hours, emergency personnel arrived, as well as family members of the Carlsons. Paramedics worked to get Levi out from under the truck, and he was transported to a hospital. But the weight of the Silverado had crushed his chest, and he was pronounced dead. This was 17 years after his mom's untimely death, which happened when he was just six years old. Wow. After inspecting the scene where Levi died, it was determined that the truck had been improperly and unsafely jacked up while Levi was working on it from underneath. Levi's uncle Mike, who was Carl's brother, thought this was particularly strange because Levi grew up around this kind of stuff, and he knew how to safely jack a truck up and put cinder blocks underneath it. It was determined that Levi's death was really a freak accident, and the family mourned the loss, especially his ex-wife Cassie, who had only just divorced Levi weeks before he was killed, and who was now going to have to raise these two daughters without him. So as you can imagine, Cassie was relieved when she learned that Levi had a life insurance policy. In what appeared to be a bizarre coincidence, Carl had actually helped Levi set up a $700,000 life insurance policy less than a month before he died. Unfortunately for Cassie and the girls, Carl also helped Levi name him as the beneficiary of the money, and it was Carl who received the $700,000 payout. Levi intended, of course, that this money would go to his two children in the event of his death, but that's not what happened. And that makes sense that he would say, I've gone through this messy divorce. I can't name my ex-wife as the beneficiary. What if she takes all this money? Of course, I'm going to give it to my dad. That makes sense. At first, the money was moved into different trusts and funds, but over time, Carl and Cindy actually drained those accounts. Within a short time of Levi's death, Carl had used some of the money to start a duck business where he would breed ducks to sell to restaurants. Carl and Cindy also reportedly appeared on a Canadian food show called Pitching In, and Mandy looked this up and couldn't find anything. I looked it up too, didn't see anything. I saw something with a similar name, but like you could not find names of contestants or anything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I spent way too much time trying to dig that up, and I was like, it's really not even, like, that important. Like, if he did, he did, and maybe he didn't. It's really not relevant to the story. Like, it doesn't make anything different, you know? As a fan of reality TV, I am all about that. Those close to the couple said that Carl really thought that this reality show would launch him to fame and fortune, and he was very pompous about being on TV. As somebody that watches reality TV, you know that, like, your 15 minutes don't last very long. (laughs) does not last very long unless you do something really crazy. So Carl and Cindy also took vacations and purchased new cars, all while ignoring the needs of Levi's young daughters and keeping the money that was actually intended for them. All of this was within the first three years after finding his son crushed to death. There were certainly plenty of people who thought Carl's behavior and choices after Levi died were questionable, but nobody thought it was more suspicious than his own wife, Cindy. And we're going to get into exactly what made the warning bells go off in Cindy's mind after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. (music) 
We are headed to Chicago in just a few weeks, and while there's inevitably some stress with getting to the airport and making sure our husbands know that our kids need to eat and wear clean clothes every day, actually packing for the trip is fun now, thanks to Away luggage. While I might not always have it together, Away makes me feel like I can fake it. Away has an amazing interior organization system that includes a built-in compression pad that actually helps you pack more in your suitcase. Plus, it has a hidden and removable laundry bag so you can separate your dirty clothes, which means less laundry when you get home. Not only is your luggage easy to pack, it's easy to roll around thanks to four 360-degree spinner wheels. They guarantee the smoothest roll, even in the busiest airports and stations. It's seriously effortless. Plus, I really love how durable my away luggage is. It has durable exteriors that can withstand even the roughest of baggage handlers. Plus, if any part of it breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. If you're still waiting for a reason to try it, Away gives you 100 days to take the product on the road so you can try it, travel with it, and if you still aren't happy with it, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that period. No ifs, ands, or asterisks. Start your risk-free 100-day trial and shop the entire Away lineup of travel essentials, including their best-selling suitcases, at awaytravel.com moms. Again, start your risk-free 100-day trial and shop the entire Away lineup of travel essentials, including their best-selling suitcases, at at awaytravel.com slash moms. And this URL is case sensitive, so please type it all in lowercase. Some days I am dragging out of bed, but one quick way to wake me up besides having a hot cup of coffee is simply by washing my face. It sounds simple enough, right? But there's something about a clean face that just starts my day off on the right foot or face. And BioClarity is a clean and green skincare brand that has products that just work. The skincare routines that BioClarity provides were made to help keep your skin looking young, healthy, and fresh. And best of all, they do all of this by using only natural and gentle ingredients. BioClarity offers two different skincare routines. The clear skin routine, which is for oily or breakout prone skin, and the essentials routine for normal skin and everyday use. We've all looked into skincare products and become overwhelmed with all the options and the cost, but clean skincare doesn't have to be expensive. BioClarity strives to make affordable options that are healthier for you and for the environment. I've been using their clear skin routine, and not only is my skin looking clear and healthy, I'm also loving the fact that I'm only putting plant-based ingredients on my sensitive skin. Get healthier, more radiant skin by going to bioclarity.com. I'm really loving all of it, but especially the Skin Smoothie Hydrate product, which leaves my skin feeling silky smooth after every wash. And even better, these products are actually affordable. And right now, for our listeners, you can save 15% off everything on their website. That's an incredible deal, but you need to enter our code MURDER at checkout. So go to bioclarity.com and get 15% off of everything on their website when you use our code MURDER at checkout. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how Carl Carlson had really been living it up since the death of his 23-year-old son in 2008. After years of watching her husband's frivolous spending, of course, with the money that he got from Levi's life insurance, Cindy started to feel as though something was not quite right about this whole situation. But it wasn't just the strange circumstances around her stepson's death. When Cindy started to look back over all of the years of their marriage, she started to realize that Carl had actually been in quite a few unfortunate situations that really in the end benefited himself financially. She remembered back to a specific event that took place on their farm in 2002. One night, just as the couple was getting ready for bed, Carl happened to look out the window and saw that their barn was on fire, and he instructed Cindy to call 911 for help. 
Sadly, the barn was a total loss, including all of their prized Belgian horses who were trapped in the barn and killed in this fire. Cindy was devastated over losing these horses, and Levi actually took it pretty hard, too. This was about six years before his death. After the barn fire, Carl collected $114,000 in insurance. Carl actually had collected on several different insurance claims over the years, and when Cindy was looking at the big picture, she started thinking, oh my gosh, my husband is this ultimate insurance fraudster, and now she has these other suspicions that he could possibly even be a murderer. All of these things, you know, are really weird and suspicious on their own, but then Cindy remembered back to when Carl told her that his first wife was also killed in a fire. And she really felt that she was onto something with these suspicions that she was starting to have. As it pertained to Levi's death, Cindy just could not stop thinking back to that day and trying to make sense of what happened. And she went over the events of the day in her head several times and specifically, you know, tried to recall certain details. She does remember that she and Carl went to the funeral that day and remember that shortly before they left, Carl said that he was going to go out to the garage and say goodbye to Levi and let him know that they were leaving and would be back later. Several minutes later, he returned to Cindy, got in the car, and they left for the afternoon. When they returned home, Cindy distinctly remembers hearing country music playing in the garage where Levi was working, and that struck her as odd because Levi hated country music, and she knew that he never would have been listening to that, you know, while he was out there working on a truck. Nevertheless, Carl said he was going to check on Levi, and Cindy just went straight into the house, and then it was moments later that Carl came running in saying that Levi was under the truck and to call for an ambulance. Cindy's theory was that Carl had gone out to the barn before they left that day, and he was alone with Levi for several minutes. She suspected that he could have possibly caused the accident then, but she talked herself out of that idea numerous times, even trying to really rationalize it by telling herself that Carl acted totally normal when he got in the car, and, you know, there's no way he could have done this beforehand because how could he have, you know, done this to his son minutes before, got in a car, went to a funeral, and acted totally normal. As time went by and Cindy kept these thoughts to herself, she started to become depressed and even began to use alcohol as a way to cope. At some point, Cindy became aware that Carl had actually used some of the money from Levi's life insurance to fund a life insurance policy on her. Game changer. Yes, terrifying. If Cindy were to die, Carl would receive a $1.2 million payout. The information was shocking and terrifying in light of all these recent suspicions that Cindy already had. So one day in the fall of 2011, Cindy had taken really all the stress she could handle with this, and she asked her friends what she should do and, you know, kind of went through her thoughts and suspicions regarding Carl. Keep in mind, at this point, they've been married for 15 years. She helped raise three of his kids. They had another kid together. They have a life together. This isn't six months into a marriage. So her friends tell her they don't really think Carl has anything to do with it, but that if it would make her feel better, she should hire a private investigator. Can you imagine being to the point where you think your husband killed his wife in a fire, has set multiple fires, has killed his son, and you finally have the nerve to tell people and they're like, "Mm, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like you finally get to that point. You have to feel so crazy already. And then your support system, yes, they're telling her to get the private investigator, but ooh, that would be so hard. It would be even hard to make that call because you'd think I'm kind of by myself. Maybe I'm crazy here, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like if my friend told me something like that, I would definitely just like suggest that they go to the police or if they wanted to hire a private investigator. But I feel like I would also be more like, you know, that, you know, try to be like positive about it. Like hopefully, you know, like I highly doubt your husband is a murderer, like kind of thing. Like I I feel like I wouldn't try to like, you know, feed into their like anxiety over it. And I would just, you know, but I would still be like, yeah, you should probably like tell somebody who can actually do something, you know, not me. No, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Please don't tell me this is too much to have. No, it makes sense. But like I, all I could picture with kind of reading this was just being like, oh, they think I'm crazy too. You know what I mean? Like no one's really believing me. And what if I'm getting this wrong? I don't know. That's how I overthink things, as you can tell, based on these sentences. I understand what you're saying, though. That makes that that all sounds much more logical coming out of your mouth. (laughs) So Cindy went on to hire a man by the name of Scott Brown, who was a private investigator. She explained to Scott that she felt like her husband may be responsible for his son's death, but that no one believed her or really wanted to hear about it. And she explained all this history and background with Carl and told the PI all the details about the day that Levi died. Scott agreed with her that things sounded really fishy and he agreed to take the case. After Scott spent some time getting to know Cindy and learning more about what led to her fears, he decided that he wanted to meet Carl himself so that he could kind of size him up in person. Of course, this wasn't going to be an easy thing to pull off since Carl didn't know that his wife was working with a private investigator to get more information on him. So Cindy and Steve came up with a plan that was really pretty risky for Cindy and it really required her to like take a huge leap of faith and kind of put herself out on a limb. So Steve thought it would be a good idea to befriend Carl by introducing himself as a potential promoter for Carl's duck business. He contacted Carl and made arrangements to come to the farm and meet with him and discuss this, you know, potential partnership they could have. The important thing for Cindy to remember when Steve came to their house was that she had to act as though she was just meeting Steve for the first time. You know, she can't let on that she... Is, has called Steve there intentionally to snoop around on her husband. This is so stressful. This woman has been through so much stress and then to now be like, also, I'm setting up a sting basically in your house. You're in on it, but you're not in on it. You got it. <laughs> like that's, And this is like just a, a private investigator. Like this is not even right. police. I would only do something like this if there was actual police officers, you know, that were really monitoring the situation. And like, because I feel like these kind of things can turn really dangerous if something goes wrong. And it doesn't have to go wrong while he's standing in the kitchen. You know what I mean? He can leave and, you know, Carl be like, hey, I know what you're doing. And it's all over that. You know what I mean? You're not safe. There's nobody there to protect you whatsoever. That's terrifying. So during this meeting between Carl and Steve, Steve really got a glimpse into what Carl was like. At one point in their conversation about the duck business, Carl started talking about how he enjoyed killing animals, quote, the old-fashioned way, and he actually physically put his hands around Steve's neck and made this, like, joking around, like, choking motion as he said this. And Steve, of course, was really put off by this. Obviously, you don't know this man. You're just at his house talking about ducks, you know, and he puts his hands on you like that. Like, that's definitely um a red flag i say as a for someone as a person if they do something like that to you. <laughs> it's a red flag as a person yes <laughs> so steve was of course really put off by this and by the time he left their meeting he was convinced that cindy had every reason to be scared of carl and to question what he was capable of steve really wanted to focus on gathering more evidence against carl so that he and cindy could go to the police with their findings but of course he knows you know they need 
in order for the police to get involved, they have to really have something, you know, to show them, to even get them to take it seriously. But Cindy was getting really anxious at this point. She was still living under the same roof as Carl, and she was really getting desperate to get away from him. As we just said, she has all these things going on, and, like, it's very... And a life insurance policy on her. Exactly. It's a very hostile and dangerous situation in her mind and probably in reality as well. So in February of 2012, Cindy was looking for someone else to confide in, and she told her cousin about her suspicions that Carl was a murderer and that she had been working with this private investigator. And she asked her cousin to not tell anyone. But as soon as she ended the call, she immediately called the sheriff's department and reported what Cindy had told her. And I feel like, Melissa... I feel like you would do this. I feel like you would like have the best of intentions, but I feel like if someone told you that they thought their husband was a murderer and they already had a private investigator, I feel like you would call the police even if they told you not to. Okay. This is a tricky one. I feel like I could be convinced not to. I feel like I would tell my husband who would immediately tell me, this is a terrible idea. Terrible. Talk to your friend, you know, figure it out, see how you can help them, but don't do that because we've been in a similar situation, not that extreme, but there was one time I wanted to call the police and I didn't. And I still bring it up to him this day because I should have called the police. That is neither here nor there. I'm just still bitter about that situation. But I I feel like if they told me and they really thought this, it's bigger than you though. But ultimately I would call. Don't ever tell me anything like this. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call the police at the end of this episode and just say, I don't know what Mandy was talking about. I think she was trying to tell me something. And if you could please just go do a wellness check on her, I'd appreciate it. Please don't do that. Okay, I guess. I'll see what happens by the end of this episode. (laughs) Once the police were tipped off, Cindy really started to feel this pressure to get away from Carl. He didn't know that he was being investigated, but police had already learned about the many questionable insurance payouts to Carl over the years. In addition to the fire that killed his first wife, the barn fire that killed the horses, and the truck accident with Levi, Carl had also collected insurance on a new Dodge Charger he owned back in 1989. The car caught fire and Carl received insurance money for it. They also learned that he was listed as the beneficiary on life insurance policies for his wife, Cindy, as well as policies on his two granddaughters, which were Levi's little girls. The total death benefit for the then four and six-year-olds would be $744,000. Like this guy literally has a number of how much people are worth. Yeah. And he like actively is setting up himself for future it like he knows like that this is what you know he wants to do this as long as he can continue to get away with it and he's setting himself up for future opportunities to cash out on more large insurance payouts it's really disturbing and it's so just upsetting that he would put life insurance policies on his granddaughters like that like that's just completely out of this world blows my mind that he would do that to his little granddaughters. It's just crazy to me. For sure. And I think it's crazy that you can just put life insurance policies on people. Me too. That happened on Real Housewives of Orange County. Vicki Gumbelson, Don Gumbelson is a saint and it's her ex-husband. And she talked about it recently and was like, I have life insurance policies on him. I'm like, how do you have them on your ex-husband? Like, how did you set up a policy? If he dies, you're going to make all this money. I don't understand. Somebody tell me the logistics on that one because I don't understand how that's possible, how you don't have to sign off on a life insurance policy if you're an adult. I don't want my husband going around making life insurance policies. Oh, I got to dig into his emails sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So back to the story. It was around this time that Cindy decided to leave Carl. She moved out of their house on the farm. 
Carl had sent her text messages that she actually felt were pretty threatening in nature. In one of the messages, he said he knew that she had been snooping around, which kind of gives a chill in my spine. This text scared Cindy so much that she immediately went home and told their 16-year-old son to pack his things and that they were leaving because Carl was being investigated for murder. Can you imagine having that conversation? Oh, by the way, your dad is actually being investigated for murder. I'm probably next. Like, this is just so much for this poor woman and this whole family to go through. So Cindy and Alex then moved from hotel room to hotel room, avoiding Carl at all costs for several months. One night while Cindy was watching an episode of Dateline, Team Manx, she got an idea. She wanted to try to record Carl admitting to knowing more about Levi's death. At the very least, she really was hoping that he would at least confess to starting this barn fire. So Cindy told Carl that she really wanted to get back together with him, and that's how she lured him to a restaurant with a recorder stuck in her bra. The estranged spouses were seated at a table, and Cindy wasted no time telling Carl that the only hope they had for getting back together was if he started telling her the truth about certain things. Cindy initially just wanted to get Carl talking about the burn fire, as I mentioned before, but he went right into the subject of Levi on his own. Cindy tried to keep him talking about it in hopes of getting Carl to say something potentially incriminating that she could, you know, turn over and share with the police. So Cindy started asking direct questions about Levi's death and was outright insinuating that Carl had done something to cause the truck to fall. She actually asked him point blank if it was hard to push the truck over, and Carl responded, quote, no, it wasn't. Wow. Yeah. It has to just be chilling to sit there. It's it's terrible if he would kill his spouse. It's terrible he's, you know, done these barn fires. But to say you you killed your son, that's a low I can't ever understand. That I don't clearly I'm struggling to speak as per usual, but can you I don't imagine I can't imagine sitting with somebody you share another kid with and they're telling you, yeah. yeah dropped it on him and killed him. Oh my gosh. Cindy took this as a confession and turned the tape over to the police. Unfortunately, the recording was so jumbled and there was really too much background noise to hear what Carl had said. But the police really believed Cindy enough to ask her if she would wear a police-issued wire and try to get Carl to talk about it again in a more controlled environment. Can you imagine being asked a second time? Oh my gosh. And then you know, I feel like I would just be so nervous that he would right. figure it out. You know, like as soon as I brought it up again, I would be so scared that he would be like, why are you asking me about this again? You I've know, already I, I, this. the whole thing is just really scary. Right. Yeah. So on their second meeting, Cindy immediately brought up Levi's death again and asked Carl to remind her of what he had said before. And she said, quote, you told me you pushed the truck, right? And he responded with, no, I didn't. I said I took advantage of the situation once it had already happened. This was still a strange thing to say, but it wasn't really enough to be considered a confession. But the police thought that it was enough to bring him in for some informal questioning. They hoped that Carl would talk to them, but they knew that he would really be within his rights to either refuse to talk or to say that he wanted to get an attorney. But Carl was more than happy to start talking, and he really started off by mostly talking a lot about himself, and he eventually got around to describing the day that he found his son Levi dead. Carl's story was really the same as it had been four years prior when he was first interviewed following his son's death. But the detectives did not give up on trying to get the real story out of him. After hours of interrogation and really a lot of feeding into Carl's ego, a second version of the story started to emerge. 
Carl told the detectives that he knew Levi had been crushed by the truck before he and Cindy left for the funeral that day, which means that Carl allegedly, by his own admission now, has just, he's saying that he just got in the car with his wife and went to attend a funeral immediately after seeing his son in this horrifying position. Carl told the investigators that he didn't call for help for Levi because he panicked. The more police got Carl to talk, the more they felt that there was even more that Carl wasn't telling them. So they continued the questioning for eight hours before Carl admitted a new detail. He said that not only did he know that Levi was in trouble, he actually saw the truck fall and told the police that he may have accidentally caused it to fall. The police were, of course, stunned at this admission, and they wanted to know exactly what had happened. Carl said he opened the door to the truck's cab to get something out of it, and when he did that, he says the truck lost its balance and fell off the jack and onto Levi. He says he then panicked and left his son there instead of calling 911. As we mentioned before, it was four hours later when Carl and Cindy returned home and Carl pretended to have just found Levi that way. Why would you even go in there then? If you know what's happened and you're so panicked, why would you be the one to go in there? You know what I mean? You you don't know how to yeah. function. You don't know how to do anything. You know what you're about to walk into. Now, all of a sudden, you can say to call the police. That doesn't make any sense. I never understand when people say, I panicked and I couldn't call the police. That's that's one panicking thing I'll never I'm never going to buy that. I mean, it was just a perfect alibi for him having this funeral, you know, to say like, oh, I was at the funeral for four hours and I came home and, and, you know, that was his whole thing was to just try and say like anything could have happened in that four hours. I wasn't here. And he would have had the alibi, you know, to, to prove it that he wasn't there. Despite all of these shocking confessions, Carl insisted that his son's death was an accident and that his only real screw up was not calling for help. The police did not agree with that. They felt that Carl's decision to leave Levi trapped under a truck for four hours, literally leaving him there to die, was just the same as murdering him. Carl was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, and absolutely no one in his life was surprised by this. And there are still so many details and pieces left in this story, and we're going to get right back into it after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. If you're familiar with the Enneagram scale, I'm what you call a type six, dependable, reliable, but also anxious and suspicious, which means trying to go to sleep at night can sometimes seem impossible. And guess what? The more I worry about how long it's going to take me to go to sleep, the longer it's going to take me to go to sleep and so on and so on until I finally pass out right before my alarm goes off. I've always been apprehensive in taking something because I don't want that groggy feeling the next day. But now there's Rimrise, a personalized sleep solution that uses natural plant-based formulas to help calm the mind, relax the body, and get your circadian rhythm back on track for a better, more restorative sleep. And because it's natural, I wake up feeling more rested and not groggy. If you're looking for a better, more restorative sleep, check out Remrise. All you have to do is go to getremrise.com slash momsandmurder and take their free sleep quiz. We both took the sleep quiz, and I found out that my sleep profile is always on. This wasn't really surprising to me since I often lay awake taking forever to fall asleep because I can't stop thinking about all the things I have to get done the next day. Remrise recommended their Power Off formula to help me turn my thoughts off and get to sleep quicker. Do what I did and check out Remrise today. 
Go to GetRimRise.com slash MomsAndMurder, take their sleep quiz, and when you sign up, you'll get 25% off your first month of RimRise. You won't find an offer like this anywhere else. Get 25% off your first month of RimRise when you sign up at GetRimRise.com slash MomsAndMurder. GetRimRise.com slash MomsAndMurder. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it in your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were up to the point in the story where Carl Carlson had just been arrested on second degree murder charges after he admitted to causing a 5,000 pound truck to fall on his son, Levi. Carl then left his son there for four hours before calling 911. Just as Cindy had been suspicious about the circumstances of the truck accident, so had other members of the Carlson family. As it turned out, there were actually quite a few people in Carl's life that got bad feelings about him, and there were a lot of previously unspoken suspicions that started to come to light. Carl's own brother Mike had been there in the immediate aftermath of both the barn fire and Levi's death, and he thought that there were strange things about each of those incidents. Once Mike saw his brother's interrogation tapes, he knew in his gut that Carl had intentionally done this and probably also the barn fire and the house fire that killed his first wife. But he wasn't the only one who thought Christina's horrific death was a bizarre tragedy that should have never happened. Back in California, Christina's family had been long thinking that Carl could have done more to save Christina that day, but that he intentionally chose not to. The house fire happened on New Year's Day in 1991. According to Carl, he was in a detached garage on their property when he saw smoke and flames coming from the house. The three young children were inside taking a nap, and Carl was able to get all three of them out of the house, but stated that he was not able to get to Christina, who was trapped in a bathroom. But things get really sketchy when it's discovered that the window in that bathroom was actually boarded shut. Carl claimed that he had boarded up that window months prior, but a family friend told police that he had been at the Carlson home just a week prior to the fire for a Christmas celebration and that the bathroom window was not boarded up when he was there. Once Carl had gotten the three kids out of the house, he loaded them all up in a car and drove away. The children actually remembered hearing their mom screaming for Carl to save her, but he just drove away without ever trying to help her. That kind of memory? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's horrific. Early on in the fire investigation, it was discovered that kerosene had actually been spread around the floor in the hallway near the bathroom where Christina was trapped and ultimately died. 
When questioned about this, Carl claimed that the family dog had knocked a can of kerosene over a few days prior, and he sort of surmised that the fire possibly spread so quickly because of this accidental kerosene spill. Within four days of losing his wife and the mother of his young children, Carl packed everyone up and moved them back to New York. He actually missed his final interview with the fire chief, and the house fire was officially ruled to be an accident. Wow. But Carl collected $200,000 in life insurance on Christina and then went on to make an entirely new life when he met and got remarried to Cindy. So when Carl was arrested in Levi's murder, there was a renewed interest about his possible responsibility in Christina's death. A New York state prosecutor took a particular interest in the case, even though it happened in California, and he learned some shocking and pretty damning evidence about the case. Although Carl's story had always been that this kerosene spilled days before the fire, a fire investigator actually said that the kerosene had been dumped on the floor and clothing in the area immediately before the fire began, and there was also no accidental source of the fire found, which could only indicate one thing, that somebody set this fire on purpose. In addition to all of that, it was found that Christina's official cause of death on her autopsy, was ruled as smoke inhalation, not from burning. So this also begs the question, did Carl have enough time to get her out of this bathroom, or did he kind of play the part there and then made it seem like he didn't really, he wasn't able to save her? The trial for Levi's murder began on November 6, 2013. In somewhat of a twist, Carl actually pled guilty to second-degree murder and insurance fraud. He admitted that he had jacked up the truck improperly on purpose and then somehow convinced Levi to work under the truck. When Levi was where Carl wanted him, he knocked the truck off the jack and left Levi trapped under it, which sounds like the most horrifying way to die ever. Yeah, and I just it's just sick to even think of that, like to even think that to set that up, you know, to make it to make it that that's just so crazy to even come up with that idea and you're leaving to go to a funeral to be around people who have lost somebody and you can see it all over their faces you know what i mean this terrible day of mourning knowing you just caused this for your own family for everyone that you loved and you took away your son from his family just just terrible what a monster so the judge sentenced him in this case to 15 years to life The conviction spurred California authorities to reopen the investigation into the 1991 death of Christina Carlson. In 2014, Carl was officially charged with murder in Christina's case and was extradited back to California to stand trial. Over the next several years, Carl was behind bars and awaiting his second murder trial, which was postponed several times. Carl actually attempted to appeal his conviction in Levi's death in 2017, but the New York Court of Appeals rejected his appeal. Good. Carl stood trial for Christina's murder this year. His trial began on January 13, 2020 in Calaveras County, California. After a two-week-long trial, the jury was released for deliberation on January 30th, and they returned with a verdict just a few days ago on February 4th. If you're listening to this on release day, February 11th, that was just one week ago. 29 years after Christina lost her life, Carl was finally convicted of killing her. It was a victorious moment for Christina's family and even the daughters, Aaron and Katie, who had actually always suspected that their father could have done more to save their mother. Aaron told 2020 in an interview that she had no doubts about her father's guilt in the deaths of both her mother and her brother, and that they knew by the time they were around 10 years old that their dad had intended for their mom to die. Aaron remembers the fire vividly. 
She was six years old at the time and remembered hearing her mom scream for Carl to get the kids out of the house. But once they were all outside, her father did nothing to try and go back to get their mother. One quote that's especially upsetting was when Aaron said, quote, at the time I was six years old, I didn't understand that my mom was behind that wall dying. Aaron said that once she and her siblings got older and had a chance to really process what happened, they all really agreed that their dad did not act in the way someone should when their spouse is trapped in a burning home. Aaron also spoke on 2020 about the relationship between her brother and her dad. She said that Levi was, quote, basically an indentured servant to her parents. She said that she was relieved when she found out the police were investigating him after her brother had died. Although Carl has now been convicted of both murders, he hasn't yet been sentenced in Christina's case. Now that his California trial is over, he will be sent back to New York to serve out his sentence there. What a story. We've heard where somebody kills a spouse, rarely where somebody's killed a kid or killed a parent, but to have done both? I don't know. Just killing the son is just, I, I can't understand it at all. Yeah, it is really, a, it really is something. And thank goodness, you know, his wife, Cindy, really, you know, rang the alarm bells. Even if everybody was kind of having these suspicions, she's the one that really, you know, put herself out there because my goodness, what who knows what would have happened? Well, I feel like that would also um, tip me off if I already was suspicious and then I found out I there was an insurance policy out on me as well. I feel like, yeah, that would cause, that would drive me to the police pretty quickly. Oh, for sure. But I just can't even imagine like you're having to put all that together and thinking, well, maybe not, maybe not. And then you find that insurance policy and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't guess this wrong. I can't wish this away. It's in your face and it's going to happen. There's no way to get around it. So, wow, this was a crazy story. Thanks so much for getting information on this one. This was a really interesting one. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page, go to the next chapter, and do Whoa, chapters last now thing before we go? <laughs> we actually had the idea for this last thing before we go from a new friend named Rick Worth, which I also think is the coolest name and is like Remulus a little bit and a little like Fremulon, and they're all going to be together in my brain for the rest of my life. So he suggested that we play Never Have I Ever. This is a G show, so it's going to be a very <laughs> Melissa and Mandy. Never have I ever. Mandy, would you like to kick us off? How do you play Never Have I Ever? What is the rules for points? We're not really doing points. I don't but, know. Okay. I really don't know how you actually play. And once again, we were <laughs> ill-prepared and did not look up how to play before we I decided did read to it. do it. I did read it. It's if you <laughs> never have I ever. So if I've never done that thing, I get a point. Okay, are you going to keep track of points? I guess. I don't know. This is where this is where we're <laughs> like, meh, that's not too important. Okay, <clears throat> the winner, the I don't know. The winner will have to do something. We'll figure it out. We'll keep going. The winner, yeah, the, do you just get bragging rights, I guess. Oh, that's not good enough for me. I need more. I'm going to have to make have you make a public statement. Okay, all right, I've got my scorecard. Let's go, Mandy. You want to start with the first one? No, I want to hear yours first. Your first one. <laughs> okay. Mine are really <laughs> mine are lame. Never have I ever worn Crocs. Oh, you know I have not. <gasps> never? Not a fashionista. No, I've never owned oh, Crocs. I've, I don't understand rubber shoes. I just I just don't understand it. And I'm not going to, so there's no point in trying to fight me about it. It's just there is no place for Crocs in my life. I have never worn Crocs and I don't think I ever will. Comfort, luxury, comfort, comfort. <laughs> As a newlywed, my husband and I bought 
Crocs. They were not the real ones. They're the ones at Walmart. And he had a black pair and I had a navy blue pair. That's even worse. Mandy, the only time in our relationship we've ever matched with anything, we had matching Crocs. And he would wear Crocs with socks. And it made me crazy. And so, but it wasn't like going places. It was like just kind of out and about like in our (laughs) condo at the time. I probably went to the store with them, but I'd rather not talk about that. I'm ta- I deserve that point because that was a very dark time in my life, although it was the first year of marriage and it technically was the best <laughs> time of my life. <laughs> Fashion-wise, it was a rough year for me. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> okay. I've been through a lot. Okay. Never, <laughs> never have I ever broke something at someone else's house and did not tell them. I mean, I tried to do that with a toilet, but everyone figured that out really fast. I don't think I have. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> no, I don't really think I have either. At least like not as an adult. I feel like I might have done like shenanigans like that when I was younger, but yeah. not recently. Wait, so I'm confused on the point <laughs> system again. Did I get a point the last round or did you get – you got a point the last round because you actually were never have I ever. Right? Right. And so we're both yeah. points here. Okay. Dang it. Okay. Okay. Next one. I'm okay. This isn't great. Never have I ever screamed during a scary movie. I'm talking in a theater. Have you ever screamed? No, never. never? Did you see What Lies Beneath in no. the theater? Because I screamed in a theater for What Lies Beneath. That movie is terrifying. No, no. I'm not like very reactive like that with movies. I don't really get emotional. I don't cry during movies a lot. And I definitely do not scream out loud in a movie theater. Not on purpose, Mandy. It was What Lies Beneath. Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> was dead coming out of the water and Harrison Ford was trying to kill her. There was a lot going on. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for it. I even dropped popcorn. Okay, so who gets the point on that one? I don't remember how this goes. You do. Dang it's it. me because I never, ever have. Oh, good. Ever. Then it's only going to be bragging rights because I'm going to lose. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Never have I ever tried to cry my way out of a speeding ticket. Oh, no, I haven't. I actually, I think I've told this story. I got pulled over one time for going like 85 in a 70 and told the officer, actually, I was going 100 and you just didn't catch me. And he said, ma'am, please don't tell me that. <laughs> so I don't try to get out of it I'm like absolutely I deserved it please give it to me I told him thank you and I think he was about to arrest me thinking I was being sarcastic but I was really like thank you for doing your job thank you I was wrong here (laughs) oh my god I get a point for that one no I've never cried I've never tried to cry my way out of a ticket I'm not really a much of a crier like I feel like I am more annoyed when I get pulled over but not to the point of like crying you know I have been guilty of like trying to like be just like really friendly with the mm. officer in hopes that he'll be like, this is a woman is very not, not friendly like that. <laughs> Pop a not, button? Not like what you're <laughs> <laughs> no, just you know, just being my typical self and like giggling and laughing and just being like, ah, like, you know, I don't know how road laws work. Like an idiot? <laughs> It has worked for me oh a gosh. couple of times, actually. Yeah. There was one time I got pulled over. I was driving. Um, I was out of state, and there was, like, a lot of hills and valleys and stuff. And I got a speeding ticket. I was going downhill. I was on the highway, but I was going downhill. And, of course, I was picking up speed and just wasn't – I was just in the zone driving, didn't pay attention. I got pulled over. And when the officer came up and he looked at my license and, you know, noticed, of course, I was from Florida and was a long way from home. And I – just 
don't know what like possessed me to say this like stupid thing, but I told him that, yeah, I like made a joke about being from Florida and said that we don't have hills here. So I didn't know that I would pick up speed when I was going down one. And he laughed and was like, I I couldn't tell if he thought I was serious or like if I was really just like that stupid that I didn't know that that would happen, but I did not get a ticket. And I I, it must just be because I am very friendly and just absolutely hilarious. And, the, you know, the police can't resist. <laughs> I really enjoyed that scenario where I get pulled over and they're like, thank God I can give this lady a ticket. She's not going to try and cry her way out of it. She's going to literally thank me. I do wink at officers. And I made that mistake one time. <laughs> very uncomfortable. Okay, Mandy, next one. Never. This one is a really dark time for me. I basically made all of my things I've done because I don't care about embarrassing myself, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Never have I ever been catfished. Have you been catfished online? Oh, my gosh. I don't even have enough time to (gasps) tell this story. Oh, wait. Yeah, I've heard this story. It is the craziest story. It's the only catfish story I really have. It's really, really crazy. And it's so long. And now I've already started it. So I have to at least like give a rundown. Um, I was not catfished by a man or a person that I was like pursuing romantically. Back when I had my first son, I joined like a bunch of mom groups and stuff. And I ended up joining this smaller group on Facebook it started off as a big group and then like 10, maybe 15 of us broke off and we made our own little group and we had the group going for years and years and years. Like we were all there for each other. We would send each other gifts. I still talk to some of the women that I met back then. I've even met several of them in person and it was a very close knit, very small group. And one of the members of the group ended up finding out that another member like There was no evidence that this person existed. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what tipped her off, but we ended up figuring out that like all the pictures on her Facebook profile were fake. Like you could reverse image search them and find them all on the internet. And like there was multiple pictures of children, but like she always said she had three kids and you never saw all three of her kids together in a picture. You only would see like one or like two of them maybe together, but like you never saw them all together. It was like a lot of stuff was really weird. And the weirdest thing for me was that when I had my second son, this woman, the fake girl, sent me a present like to my address for my baby. And like she was very nice and we all like loved her and thought she was who she said she was. Anyway, to make a long story even longer, we ended up confronting her and she just deleted her profile and we never heard from her. But this was somebody who was in our group like – had read some of our most personal stories for like the course of like seven years. And then finally we find out that like she was not a real person or not who she said she was. And she just disappeared and we never got an explanation about, you know, what was going on. That's so creepy. Yeah. I don't like that at all. Yeah. So um, mine is more embarrassing. Of course I, when internet, when the internet was starting, what am I talking about? Back with AOL Messenger and stuff like that. I'm, I don't know where I was or how I got in contact. I think you would just find people in your area, which is like, I don't know, the saddest thing in the world. I was talking to this one guy. I don't know why. I still had never had a boyfriend at this point, and I was 18 years old. And <laughs> he was interested in taking me out. And of course, you know, I was like, I'm not going to meet him without having a friend there and all that. I'm very, very scared of literally everything. He's a Florida State football player. First thing that should have tipped me off that he is not interested in me at all. And he's definitely not a real person. But I could never find any pictures of him like with the team and stuff. And he sent one and it was so small. I couldn't really tell. And I don't remember all the things that happened. But a friend of mine was like, 
I don't actually think he's real because he won't actually give you his name, but he keeps telling you he plays for Forest. I was really oh, heartbroken. Boy. I was in love with what's his face. I wasn't actually, but I really did like think, oh, the internet might be used for bad things besides me tricking people into thinking I'm an old man. And that was a really <laughs> rough time for me. All right. So we both get nothing for that because we've both been catfished. Mandy, okay. next one. I'll do one more. So never have I ever kept someone awake with my snoring. <laughs> okay. I will never give you a point for that. I will take five <laughs> points away from you and give you negative numbers because that is. <laughs> do you want to say the story or do I say the story or do we just pretend the story doesn't You can exist? say the story. I put this one in there Thank just for you. you. Well, we, we went to CrimeCon last year and we shared a room <laughs> and that was fine. And I was really tired because I like to get sleep and I don't always get very much sleep. Mandy is okay with not getting sleep. She was very bright eyed the entire time and I couldn't figure out how the heck she was doing it. <laughs> One night, I think maybe the first night, she started snoring and it was that like, snor <laughs> you're okay with this, the snoring that peels the paint off the wall and you cannot make it go away. I put both my earbuds in blaring things as loud as possible and it wouldn't work. And then I finally was like, I'm going to videotape her. And I didn't videotape her face, but I did record her. So in the morning I was like, hey, um, did you know you snore? And she was like, I don't snore. And I was just like, had my finger <laughs> shaking, sitting over the play button and was like, here you go. And played it. And she was laughing so hard. So Mandy, you are you lost. I'm sorry, you lost. <laughs> I lost. The you whole lost game. all of your points. I'm shaking now, just reliving that. <laughs> the worst thing is, I don't think my mom's listened for a while. My sister and I went with my mom to South Carolina and stayed in a room with her. And my mom, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, was snoring, and she didn't believe it either. And I pulled the same thing on her and <laughs> made her. <laughs> I will always. <laughs> to be fair, I feel like I don't really snore often. I think if I drink wine before I go to sleep, then that makes me snore. And I definitely had a social time at CrimeCon, especially that first night I was hanging out with everybody and I had a couple glasses of wine. So I'm going to blame it on that. But anyway, yeah. So after that, Melissa very kindly told me that she just wants to have separate rooms anytime we have to go anywhere. I love and that conversation. We're, all, we're both fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that conversation because it was like the worst moment of my life being like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I will murder you if I ever have to slay in a room with you again. I can't do it. I care about our friendship too much. We can never share a room again. <laughs> and that's why we're such good so, friends. Yeah. We have our personal space and we come together and it just works for us. And that's just how I am yeah, as a person. I, mean I, I think I just can't. I mean, my husband, I've slept on the couch for two weeks since I've had a cold, like had the flu and everything. And like, I'm starting to like it. And I'm going to eventually move back <laughs> to my room. But I have so much space and it's so quiet. Nobody's rolling around. I love it. And that's how people end up sleeping in different rooms, I figured out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, Mandy, you lost. Sorry about that. Um, no oh, need to do okay. another one. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> we all lost in this one. Real quick, since we talked about the episode this week, you know, that we had it in case suggestions, if you go to our website, momsmurder.com, there's actually a place you can click on for case suggestions. Remember, we won't do anything involving kids, so please don't even bother sending it. Not in a rude way, just 
we won't do it. And then you'll be like, why are they ignoring me? Well, because it has to do with kids. And please, please, we can't do it. So anyway, it's there. And then we're putting them in a little thing and we're making it organized and we're picking different things. And so we want to use your choices, but please go through it that way. It makes it really easy and organized. And look at us with spreadsheets and just really living life over here. And last thing is our tickets to our live show. If you want to see this live, why? Um, (laughs) The tickets are on sale uh, for March 27th at the Chicago City Winery. Tickets are going fast. And I know that's a thing that you're supposed to say, but they actually are going much faster than we anticipated. So we're super excited. (laughs) And after this episode, people may be asking for refunds. I don't know. But anyway, check that out. The link will be in the show notes. And I think that's it for this week. Yeah, I mean, I think we have mentioned CrimeCon already several times, but if you maybe have missed it or have forgotten about it or forgot what our code was, we will be at CrimeCon May 1st through 3rd here in Orlando, Florida. You can use our code M&M2020 to get 10% off your standard badge. We would love to see you. CrimeCon is so much fun. If you can make it, please. Yeah, it's the best time. (laughs) As Mandy said, she'll be very social. You'll see Mandy being social. You'll see me being heading to my room by like 9.30. Antisocial. Yeah. Social to Going 9.30. Up to her room alone. That's it. I'll just be sitting in silence in my room. There you go. All right, guys. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.